so much bigger than you. Just stop, look, listen, see, hear, and be inspired. You, us, we. We are all part of God's started movement that is growing larger and faster than any other time in human history. It started with Jesus. And right now, there's nearly two billion of us around the world. Can you see it? Can you feel it? Can you sense the growing move of God as never seen before? From a small rural village in Peru to the boundless energy of New York City, from the slums of Calcutta to the suburbs of Nairobi, from basements in Riyadh to high-rises in Hong Kong, from Toronto to Tokyo, from Manchester to Moscow, from cities in Thailand to the steppes in Tibet, God, God is on the move. Each person, each church, connected to Jesus himself by the call of God the Father and filled by the fire of the Holy Spirit. All of us from every tribe, every tongue, every family, every nation, born of God and now together working with God to see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it really is in heaven. As Paul wrote so long ago in Ephesians 2.21, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. See, we really are all in this together. Here at C4, our vision is to become a regional church of 10,000 that not only meets spiritual needs, but also physical and emotional needs of people in Jesus' name. There are people right here at C4 and in our neighborhoods that are going through difficult life circumstances, and we can help. The Care Fund. When you give to the Care Fund, all the money goes directly to helping people with basic needs like groceries, gas for their car, shelter, and professional counseling. If everyone gives a little, we can make a big difference. So please give generously. We're all in this together. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving, C4 Church. Hope that uh, you've eaten turkey, if not today. Again, as we always say every year for all the Americans watching today, don't be confused. We just do it at the right time. You're going to be fine a little bit later. So I want to welcome you again to our church this morning. Thank you so much for being here on this beautiful, well, it was beautiful, long weekend. Uh, it's not so much today. But today is an interesting day. Because today is the end of the series that we've been in all, uh, all fall called We're All in This Together. And it also is the end of one week. Now I just want to say uh, before I begin to preach this, I want to thank you very, very much. This is very genuine. From the bottom of my heart, for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you that chose this week to join us to fast and pray and ask God to do a new thing in you and a new thing in us. And as we've been hearing bit by bit in, in, through stories what God has been doing, sin that has never been confessed, reconciliation and relationships, people feeling the presence of God or the joy of God or wrestling with God. I just, like I, I've taught so many times, when one person changes in our church, it affects all of us. And so what I'd like to do before I preach is I would like to ask God to seal everything he's done this week. So would you stand with me and, and, and join as we do this together? Uh, because this is far from done, but this again was a significant week uh, of, of, of spiritual walk in our church. So Lord, as a people we stand, and right now we who are physically here, the many online later this week, and here's what we want to say. First of all, thank you for meeting us. 
Thank you for, for hearing our prayers. Thank you that you're, you're not done this week. This is the beginning of a much larger conversation. Jesus, we pray at the end of this one week for more renewal in our life. And we pray for corporate revival in our church. We pray that you would accept our fasts and our prayers as good and beautiful and done in the right way. And Lord, we pray for right now, as we did on Thursday night, hundreds of us, we pray for every child and every tween. And we pray for every teen and every young adult. We pray for every adult and every senior connected to our church. And our prayer is, Lord, would you, Jesus, touch each one of us, not one left behind, every single person in our church, so we will be more like Jesus, so we will be prepared to do greater things for your kingdom. Spirit of God, seal what you've done. Don't allow the enemy or our own hearts or the world to choke it out, kill it, or remove it. We pray for greater things in this church. And everyone said with expectancy, amen. Amen. Thank you. Awesome. So much for that. So we're now in the last day, like I said, or the last sermon in this series. And let me one last time, again, be crystal clear about what we've been thinking through and exploring this whole fall. We've been answering questions like this through the series. What will mark us as a local church? What will C4 Church be known for? What will we not just talk about or hope for, but actually do together? How formed will we be as a people? How molded will we be as a church family together under the Holy Scriptures and empowered by the Spirit of Jesus Christ? And and the answer has been this, that we as a church must do biblical community together. We must worship passionately. We must serve radically. We must give joyfully and sacrificially. We must pray expectantly. And then lastly, we need to invite courageously. This is the answer to what we've been walking through and praying for. And this needs to become the foundation for what we keep praying that God would do among us. Today, I'm going to call us as a family to become more and more of a church that's involved in courageous invitation. A church that really knows, hear this this morning, a church that really believes that Jesus is present among us and is offering himself continually to the world. Then that should become the place, the belief, the grounding that spurs us on to invite courageously beyond our personality or our fear or our history. If we truly as a church believe that Jesus says he's present among us, then we with great courage should be able to invite people en masse. Because if he's really here, he's really going to meet people. And yet the question we're going to wrestle with this morning is, do many of us really, really believe he's here? Beyond just what we think, is he here? The passage I'm going to preach out of today is Mark chapter 2. If you've got your Bible, physical, virtual, you can navigate or turn there. But as you're doing that, especially if you're on a, on, on a virtual Bible, I want everyone to turn to Luke 5 first. We're going to preach out of Mark 2. I'm going to preach out of Mark 2. But Luke 5 is where I want to begin today, just for a moment. And let me tell you why. Both Mark and Luke have the same story I'm going to speak out of today. But Luke and Luke 5 starts in a, in a sort of a more broad place. And what Luke, how he introduces this story is very significant to what I'm going to challenge myself and all of us to do over this coming year and years to come. So let me just read Luke 5, 17, and then we'll begin and we'll get to Mark 2 in a minute. It says, one day Jesus was teaching. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there, and they had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea, uh, from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Now, I want you to understand this. So Jesus is teaching. We're going to find out later he's teaching in Capernaum. 
And Jesus is there, and there's an ominous presence in the beginning of this conversation. Why? Because every single leader now from the whole area, the whole nation, has shown up to check out Jesus. So let me give you a modern equivalent. It would be like if I was teaching and every single blogger that wondered about me or hated me showed up in the room, opened their laptops, and said, start talking. That's the intensity of what's going on here. All now, the whole religious institution of the day is now sitting. The representatives, the brilliant minds of the day are sitting and watching Jesus. So Jesus is teaching, but there's more. It says that the power of God was upon Jesus to heal. The word power in Greek is dynamite. It's where we get our word dynamite. So this is like explosive power, and it's upon Jesus to heal. Now, I want you to notice this. This is very important, C4, because this enforces what I was teaching you a few weeks ago when we talked about radical service. See, notice this. Remember, we talked that Jesus, he is forever God. He's not lesser than God. He is God. He always has been God. He, has, he is God. He always will be God. But when Jesus came on earth, he chose to demonstrate what it looked like to be submissive to God the Father. And so Jesus never healed, never cast out demons, or never taught on his own authority. He never did anything out of his own divinity, though he was God. He, under the leading of God the Father, and under the power of the Holy Spirit, did everything. Remember, that's why we talked about how we can expect to do the same things or greater things than Jesus as a church, because the same Spirit that was on Jesus is on us. And look at it, it's right here. And the power of God was with Jesus to heal the sick. God is leading Jesus himself to heal under the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our hope. And you say, well, John, why are you bringing this up? Because I thought we were talking about courageous invitation. Well, here's what we need to hear this morning. As we begin a conversation about inviting people to Jesus and inviting people regularly to church, here's what happens to us immediately. We think about all the times we failed. We think about fear. We think about history. We say, well, I'm not that type of personality. I'm this type of personality. Or can I do this? Or do I have the right words? Or do I have enough education? Am I really equipped? Church, you are equipped. The Spirit of God is on you. He's on you. So as Jesus functioned under the power of God, so we function under the power of God, and we do not need to fear because the answers we need are found ultimately always in the power of God himself. See, the same person and power that rested upon Jesus is resting on us. And never forget that it is the Holy Spirit that reveals Jesus, draws people to Jesus, convicts them of their sin, and even lets them see Jesus for who he truly is. We are not going to have a conversation today saying, pull up your bootstraps and get more courageous and go it out alone. No, no. God is with us as he was with Christ. He is in us as he was with Christ. He is working through us as he did with Jesus. So do not fear, because as we talk about more and more becoming a church of courageous invitation, let us never forget that though we have to do our work, and though we have to have answers, and though we will not promote anti-intellectualism in this church, we will not say, well, God's going to do everything and we don't need answers. No, no. But as we do all the hard work and the kindness and the coffees and the genuine dialogue and the intellectual questions, never forget, God, this is his mission that we're joining him on, and he's the one who empowers us, and he's the one who lets people see Jesus. We just get to be the conduits. If we start the conversation there, 
then all the fear and all the disconnection that would have happened in the next 30 minutes, it can just go away right now. Because do not forget, God calls people to himself. Jesus died for our friends. The Spirit of God convicts and brings them to faith. We just are the messengers. If we start with sovereignty, there is great courage that's built in the local church to invite. So Jesus is sitting in this situation. All his critics are there. We have this great insight that God the Father has led Jesus to this moment, and it says that he has given him permission at this moment to heal the sick. Now turn to Mark 2, and it will all make sense. In Mark chapter 2, this is how Mark begins the conversation. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered to the point that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So I want you to imagine driving in your neighborhood, if you live in a neighborhood, or you're driving through a neighborhood, and outside one house, just one house, hundreds and hundreds of people are milling around, there are cars everywhere, people are sitting in windows, the garage doors are both open, but they're not barbecuing and having a bud, something else is going on. All the doors in the garage are open, and everyone's looking inside, and you're going, what in the world is going on in that place? And so you stop. And someone inside the house is teaching. See, that's what the picture is at that moment. Hundreds of people are crowding into one house. It is so packed that people are outside. And they're straining to hear Jesus as he teaches with such authority. Suddenly. Suddenly at the back of the room and beyond the room in the crowd, at the back of the very back of the crowd, there's commotion. The scriptures tell us that four guys show up. We're going to read about it in a minute. And they're carrying someone in something, no one's sure. And they want to get through to Jesus, but they can't. I think all of us have seen, some of us have physically witnessed, have been in places where famine strikes. And when the UN comes in or an NGO comes in and they open those trucks filled with whatever they're giving out, you see the crowds desperately claw at each other and they will not give an inch to anyone else because if they do, they're going to die. So you have hundreds of people milling around one house, people who want to not only hear the word of God, but want to be healed. There's a group that comes to the back that are desperate to find Jesus, desperate to get a friend to Jesus, and no one's budging because they're as desperate as him. So what happens? Well, many of you know the story. They try, let's say, for an hour or two to get through. They can't do it. They're, they're intense people. They're strategic planners. What are we going to do? They have a meeting. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go around the back of the house. So they go around the back. It's still packed. And so probably what took place is they actually probably got in another house and then jumped over or climbed over with this guy onto the roof of that house. So it says in verse 3 these words. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Now a paralytic is a paralyzed person. They can't walk. Here's a question this morning as we get going. Have you ever been carried before? I mean, have you really been carried before because you couldn't move? So you only know the power and the humiliation and the gratitude you have, depending on the situation, if you've been carried. I was thinking about that this week, you know, uh, being in Ecuador growing up. I was born in the Shoab. I grew up in Ecuador. And I remember being on the beach for hours. I think I shared this story, and I just was out way too long. And, and I got so badly burned. You ever had this experience? Every time I moved my legs and they touched each other, I started screaming. And I remember my parents coming and literally picking me up and carrying me. And such relief. I have this vivid memory of such relief because I didn't have to move because it was so painful. And they picked me up and they carried me. I remember in grade two, 
Growing up in Costa Rica, an earthquake hitting 7.1, the place exploded all around us. I remember, I believe it was my mom, rushing into my room and literally grabbing me out of my bed and running as all the dishes are falling and everything's shaking. And I, she carried me. I remember driving home from teaching at a retreat years and years ago, coming down and hitting black ice and going into oncoming traffic. I've shared this story too. Getting hit, broadside, three 360s later, I'm sitting in a swamp in my car. I used to be 60 pounds heavier than I am today, maybe 70. All that force went into the steering wheel, bent it in half. The gear shaft ripped right out. I was actually sitting horizontal. My chair broke at the, at, at the impact. So I was laying down in my car. My, my one foot was in the passenger area, my other foot in the driving area, sitting there. All the windows blew out. I was carrying, of course I was. I had a huge theological textbook in the back. Millard Erickson Systematic Theology. I love it still today. I have it in my office if you want to see it. It blew out the back window. If it came forward, it would have killed me. Wouldn't that have been interesting? Killed by a theological... Come on. Come on. Killed by a Southern Baptist. It's good. It's good. So I'm, I'm laying there. I, I, I'd taken my jacket off because it was hot in the car, though it was February outside. And so I went into shock. And then, of course, it's freezing cold and I'm shaking and I can't move. And I remember this woman running down the hill in this big fur. Don't move. I'm like, where am I going? You know, uh, uh, she says, I'm going to get help. And I remember these firemen coming. Just that moment, these firemen coming down this hill. Remember, I'm in a swamp. And, and these guys uh, saying, how much do you weigh? And I gave them one number and they went, really? Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, noted, and, uh, and getting me out of the car. But it's one of the few times in my adult life where I had to be carried. I, I couldn't do anything. I had no control. See, that's what's happening here. And why is this so important? See, I want this image to be burned in your mind as I preach today. Here on online, please. Because whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, let me say this to you. See, that is the condition of every person spiritually who does not know Jesus. They cannot get to Jesus by themselves. They are spiritually broken, as many of us, all of us were. And we as a church, as one of the churches, are called to carry our friends and our enemies and strangers and the whole region of Durham back to Jesus. If you believe people without Jesus can walk to God, you will never carry them. Let me dispel the lie. They are dead spiritually. They are disconnected from God. They will never carry themselves to Jesus. It says some men came bringing a paralytic, and he was carried by four. You know, there's a deeper pain here that we miss as modern people. We go, well, he was crippled. That's pretty brutal. And of course, in that culture, I mean, no wheelchairs, no access, no human rights. Okay, yeah, but it's deeper. See, in the Old Testament, it was declared that if you were lame or a paralytic or if you had leprosy, you were cut off from the people of God. You were never permitted to fully engage in what we would now call church. You could never really get close to God. And so it's not bad enough that he has to live his life being carried around by others. It's not bad enough that this is his experience. Oh, don't you understand? See, he believed and was taught his whole life that he was not welcome to know God personally. Can you imagine his inner thoughts at 3 a.m.? I'm sure he said, I hate being carried. Every time someone looks at me, I'm sure he said, it's bad enough. It's bad enough. It's bad enough that they move away or don't look at me or someone else has to help me go to the bathroom. But, oh my goodness, like, people, when they look at me, I know what they're thinking. So who sinned? You or your parents? 
What generational thing was done to you to get you like this? I'm sure at this point, there was no tears left. I'm sure they left a long time ago. I'm sure maybe that day he argued with his friends, don't take me. I'm too tired. I'm too whatever. I'm sure the real reason at his core was he maybe didn't want to get his hopes up again. See, like one more humiliation and maybe you die inside for good. Dust in his eyes. He looks up. His friend's carrying him. I'm sure they're smiling. He smiles back. I'm sure he wanted their faith. Maybe he had their faith, but I don't think so. See, probably life had taught him one thing, which many people who suffer know. Nothing in life is fair. It's never safe. And oh, by the way, it's worth very little, and friends come and go. It says, verse 4, since they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat of the paralyzed man that the paralyzed man was, was laying on. This is a typical roof in the region, by the way. They were flat. They're not slanted like ours. It was made from mud and thatch. So these guys are so motivated that somehow they get up on top of the roof and they carry him up there. Think about the determination to carry a full-grown man, four of you, up on top of a roof. They are so determined that their friend would meet Jesus. They break the law. They destroy personal property. They literally unroofed the roof. Inside, can you imagine the chaos? There's dust, people are looking up, Jesus is talking, and then suddenly dry hay, branches, people start screaming, the owner, stop ruining my house. Like, can you imagine? This is my house, not your house. What are you doing? Uh, People are trying to move, but it's so packed they can't move, so the roof is literally falling on Jesus and his friends. It's dust, it's chaos, and in the moment, I guarantee you, Jesus is looking up, just waiting. I guarantee you that Jesus has been waiting for this day from the time where there was no time. The man is brought down in front of Jesus. He looks him in the eyes. He looks back, and he does not know it, at his creator. The whole crowd is now wondering, what would Jesus do? I guarantee you, since Jesus is God, remember this man's conception. I'm sure Jesus smiled, mischief in his eyes. See, the Father had already given him permission to heal this way. Why? Because the power of God was upon Jesus to heal. Jesus knew why he was here. And so this man is laying there, and he's about to do an unbelievable thing. And yet this unbelievable thing is going to begin the beginning of the end for Jesus because the people sitting in the room hate him. When Jesus saw their faith, verse 5, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want to point this out. If you've done church for a while, you've heard this, but listen again. When Jesus looked at the paralytic, he saw the faith of the man on the mat? No, He saw the faith of the four men that carried the man to him. He looked up at the four guys doing this. Yes, go get him, Jesus. And he saw them. Now, what does faith mean? Because a lot of churches go bizarro land with this. So let me be clear and biblical. Faith is not faith in itself. Faith is not faith in the idea of healing. Jesus saw four men that believed on him. Faith is in Jesus Christ. And they believed that Jesus couldn't just heal, they believed who he was. If anyone teaches you, if you have enough faith, you'll be healed, it's from hell. It's not true. Faith is found in in Christ. Christ is under the will of the Father, and what he ordains, that's what takes place. These men are looking and they're saying, we know who you are, Jesus. We have brought our friend because we know who you are. Jesus, seeing, I love this, the faith of the four, looks down at the man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He speaks with gentle authority, eye to eye. 
Now, I wonder if the man's first reaction was disappointment. Forgiveness. I'm not here for forgiveness. I'm here for healing. Another useless religious statement that makes me feel good. Thanks for the retreat moment. I'm going to be the same on Monday. I want to be healed. I want to walk around. I want to do things I've fantasized my whole life. But instead, you, this roaming teacher, this sage sort of prophet, says your sins are forgiven. Now, at this moment, he doesn't know. His sins are forgiven. But he doesn't know it. I'm sure at that moment, maybe the hope of the man is leaving. And then another disruption happens. It's not outside. It's, you see, the disruption happened on the corner of the crowd. That's done. There's a hole in the roof. Someone's going to get sued later, I suppose. That's happened. So where's the... It's in the house. Now another commotion takes place in reaction to what Jesus has just said. It says in verse 6, Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there. We, we met them in Luke 5. Thinking now to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. God, uh, God alone. Mark gives us insight into the dialogue of the great pastors and theologians of the day, the ones charged with teaching and guarding the law. So they've come on a fact-finding mission just like they did with John the Baptist to see who this Jesus guy is. So Jesus looks in front of all his blogging critics and declares the one thing you should never say. He said, oh, I can forgive sin." This is inappropriate, irreverent, it is startling, actually, it is blasphemous. And oh, do you know actually what the penalty for blasphemy was 2,000 years ago? Let's think about it, right. Oh, capital punishment, you get stoned. So Jesus is sitting there, and he declares the worst thing you can declare as a religious teacher. And they're thinking in their minds, how in the world can this guy say this? Now, they haven't said anything out loud. We have no sense their body language is revealing anything at all. But they are debating and discussing in their mind, saying only God can forgive sins. Well, they're right. The Old Testament is clear about this. There is only one being in all of creation, seen and unseen, that can deal with sin, and his name is God. God knows the hidden heart. God knows hidden motives, and God forgives sins. And now this guy walks into the room and says, I can do both. So if he's not God, he's committed blasphemy. So here's the quote. Ready? Either he's God, he's mad, or he's bad, but there's no other option. They understood what he was doing. So Jesus, I'm sure, can you just, like a Cheshire cat, smiling? Uh-huh. Exactly. Yes. You caught me. I can forgive sins. And, and, and just so you know, I'm about to prove to you that I can do this. This is no show. And I love this. Watch this in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. And in their hearts, and what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, well, why are you thinking these things? So the small group is shocked again by their own thoughts. Before they can get involved, uh, he, he challenges them. Notice this. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, using the gift of words of knowledge, Jesus exposes what they're really thinking on the spot. And before they can say anything, then he says this to them. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Boys, what do you think? Immediately, the question hangs over the room. See, there's no way to really know if your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, anyone can say your sins are forgiven. I can walk up and say your sins are forgiven. A lunatic could do that. A rational person, a professor, any person can mouth the words, your sin is forgiven. So maybe Jesus is a charlatan. Maybe Jesus is just a guy who's on a circuit. Maybe this is cheap grace. But he knows 
but something else has to happen. So how do you know? Well, Jesus says, I'm about to demonstrate to you that I can do both. So if I get this guy off the mat, then you'll know I've forgiven him too. But that you may know, look, verse 10, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, very un-Canadian, get up, take your mat, and go home. You say only God can forgive sins? Watch me, a human, do the same, and then you will know that my name is Emmanuel. I am God in flesh. I am God with us. His eyes shift from the religious so-called experts of the day, the ones that represent him supposedly, now to the one laying on the mat. The humiliated one, the broken one, the unloved one, the one whose physical condition mirrors his soul. He is unable to do or be what he was designed to be. As Jesus' eyes turn, so now all the eyes turn on the man, like, is he going to get up? I'm sure the room was rife with hope and faith and skepticism and fear, depending on the person. There's light streaming from the hole. Friends are looking down, hoping and praying. The religious leaders are wondering. Everyone else is holding their breath. And then it happens. Suddenly, there's movement in the man's limbs. People gasp. I'm sure some people said praise God and other people said bad words. All together. His friends begin to cry and weep. I'm sure they did. And the guy gets up and starts walking in front of them. It says in verse 12, he got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Amazed. Praise God. Never seen. Do you notice it? The man not only gets up, he takes the mat that has been carrying him and he carries it because Jesus has healed him. The thing that was his bondage now no longer owns him. And everyone is blown away, and yet this is a rude awakening for the crowd sitting in there. The religious leaders, this is the line that they were waiting for him to cross. This becomes the clash and the grounding for crucifixion. Now that's a pretty amazing story, wouldn't you say? And yet, we're not done. I could preach that and walk off, and just, but no. See, Mark's not done with the conversation yet. Because Mark is trying to show us something greater. And so this is what Mark does next. Just, just keep following with me for a moment. It says that after this a profound encounter takes place, he chooses to have another fight. Jesus decides to have another conversation with someone else who's an outcast over a meal. Jesus does this all the time. He, he ate food with all sorts of people, normal people, unnormal people, flagrant sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, farmers, fishermen, uh, housewives, artists, the intellectual, the religious elite. I mean, he's come from all. So it says in verse 13, these words, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Now this only exists for a moment in Mark. And then he moves on to the next story. And I asked myself the question this week, why did Mark include this? Just because he was bored, because it's filler? No, no. I, I need everyone to pay attention. And, and trust me, this is true. This is what scholars spend a lot of time pointing to. See, Jesus forgives someone's sin, says you're no longer a paralytic, declares before human beings he's God, and then he goes out to the wilderness in the lake and begins to teach. All through the book of Mark, water and wilderness is where the devil lives. 
Jesus, after he does this profound act, walks right back into where the kingdom of darkness is. And he says, boys, just so you know, you think you're going to stop me? You think that your kingdom is stronger than my father's? It is not. Watch me undo everything you've done since the beginning. This is a declaration again to the kingdom of darkness. They cannot stop him. He heals a person. He teaches in the wilderness. And the very next thing he does is he goes after one of the most lost people in the Bible. It says in verse 14, as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Now don't miss this. This isn't like, Levi, come have a latte with me. We're going to have a chat. This is, come be my disciple. Levi understood. He was a Jew. He got this. Be a follower. I'm a rabbi. Follow me. He says, fine. I give up my life to follow you at this moment. Now, understand the power of this. Tax collectors were Jewish middlemen between the Jews and a Roman occupational go- uh, government. Uh, here's, here's some history maybe to help you out. Tax collectors were hated beyond belief. They had made a deal with the devil. They had sold their souls. They were working for an occupational force. All sorts of non-biblical, scholar, uh, non-biblical sources tell us they were invo- involved in mass exploitation. They were known for lying, cheating, and overtaxing. And oh, by the way, they were supporting a government that randomly and en masse crucified thousands of their fellow Jews and also desecrated God's name. This is a Jew, like, this is like a French person or someone from Holland choosing to work with the Nazis during World War II. It is that level of hatred. Immediately, if you became a tax collector 2,000 years ago, you were disqualified to be a witness in any case, you were excommunicated from the synagogue, and you were immediately on outs with your whole family. You need to understand the level of hate people had for people. It's not just they took their money. It's deeper than that. So Jesus comes up, to someone who's just like a cripple, right? Socially, it says, you, I want you to follow me. Me? <laughs> Didn't you see my card? Have you read my Facebook profile? Tax collector. Follow me. No, no, you got to understand, LinkedIn tells me I work with the Roman occupational government. Follow me. So he does. Then what happens next? It says later that night, it's verse 15, while Jesus was having now dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, in quotes, were eating with him and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. Can you imagine Levi's joy? I mean, this amazing person, this leader, this healer, this most respected religious guy wants to hang out and sit with me, and not just with me, but my whole crew and all of us, every single one of us, we know we've made a deal with the devil. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You say, well, are they just upset? No, you've got to understand, 2,000 years ago, it was taught that actually your spiritual life was directly connected to who you were with. And so the idea was that if you were in relationship or if you ate with people, because eating was not just a thing you did, it was a religious act, If you ate with those who are contaminated, you become contaminated. In other words, it's like a cold. Anyone got a cold from a relative or friend in the last week or two? Raise your hands. Liars, liars. You all, yeah. Flu. You know what I mean. They viewed spirituality like that. So these Pharisees are like, we may not agree with this guy, but he's a great religious teacher. What is he doing? Eating with sinners. Doesn't he know that God now will view him as a sinner? 
Doesn't he know that when he shares food, he's saying he's okay with what they're doing? Oh, by the way, Jesus never, ever, ever justifies anyone's sin by eating with them. He still, in the end, always tells them to go and sin no more. And by the way, Christian, if you're one of those people who believe that you shouldn't be with non-Christians to protect yourself, wrong. Unbiblical. We are commanded to be with all people at all times, in the world, not of it. But we never justify someone's sin by being with them. Don't you see? It was Jesus' holy contact that would begin the conversation that would bring eternal life. There is no room in this church for a fortress mentality. There is no room. Jesus sits with people that decent and good and religious people do not choose to do because they think it will contaminate them. And Jesus says in verse 17, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, it is the sick. I have come to call the right, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Don't you understand? Why do you think I'm here? I am here because people really need a doctor. And instead of throwing rocks at the people that need the doctor, I'm going to come and help them out. But there's more here. Do you see what he does here? He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is intentionally Jesus now throwing it out. So which one are you? Are you the righteous or are you the sinner? Or do you know? See, Jesus at this moment is doing something unbelievable, unbelievably brilliant. And it's at the core of what we need to talk about today. Jesus is confronting the two idols in the human heart. The two greatest expressions of sin. One is called moralism. It's the religious leaders. I'm good because of what I do. I'm okay because I'm religious. I'm kind. I give to God. I I tithe. Don't you know that God likes me because of what I do for him? The other is hedonism. I live my life based on pleasure and pain. I do what I want, when I want, how I want. But see, here's the point. Both of these conditions are the exact same to God. The most religious Pharisee and Levi, the tax collector, are the same in God's eyes. Why? Because both of them end up with themselves. Levi is messing with people and stealing their money, and the Pharisee is condemning people and thinking he's okay by his own religious acts. Both of them are committing the idolatry called self. And Jesus shows up and says, Don't you understand? You're all sinners, and I've come for all of you. Don't you understand that the tax collector and the cripple and the scribe all need me? See, there's no out with Jesus. By the way, years later, you may know who Levi is. We today call him Matthew. If you come from a mainline church, you call him St. Matthew. He wrote this little significant thing. You know about it? Um, Oh, yeah, right, the Gospel of Matthew, that little thing. Um, Radically changed, follower of Jesus, early church leader, ready? It says in church tradition, spoke in Ethiopia, Egypt, birthed the church in Africa, which is still probably the most vibrant church globally today. And, oh, here it is, he laid his life down for Jesus as he was speared to death, saying Jesus' name. That all started because Jesus walked up to a tax collector And looked at him and said, I want you to follow me. What we read 2,000 years later, this guy was inspired by the Spirit to write Scripture. And Jesus came and did it. What do we learn from a walking cripple, four real friends, social outcasts, religious leaders? Well, Here's where I'd like to go as I end, and I hope you're ready. Here's the first thing. Some of you gathered here and online today, 
you actually are the cripple. You're the tax collector, you're the sinner, and you're the scribe. Like you really are. Some of you, as I've been speaking, have been going in your soul in the deepest part of you. Jesus, do you still do things like that today? The answer is yes. Jesus still eats with sinners and heals cripples and overcomes religiosity and gives eternal life. Here's my direct question to you this morning as one who represents God. Are you living the life God has not called you to live? Know this, that at this moment, God, the God of the universe, found through Jesus, knows all that you are, where you have been. He knows every wicked action you've ever done and has been done to you. He knows how you've used your mind, your body, your money. He knows how you've treated your parents. He knows how you've treated your friends. He knows how you've done business. He knows how you've treated your associates and your enemies. He knows how you deal with your family. And, oh, by the way, he knows how you treat him. And not only does God know your sin, God also knows rejection and pain. He knows all your marginalized feelings and experiences. Anger, alone, frustration, question, rejection, fear, he gets it. Whether you're rich or have nothing, he knows you. And at this moment, at this moment on Thanksgiving, what a better day than, like, this is unbelievable. God is calling some of you to come and eat with him, to find true life. It's actually interesting we were given the verse out of 2 Corinthians 6 today, that today is the day of salvation for someone. Is that you? But it's interesting in Luke's account, he uses one word that Mark really doesn't. Luke 5.31, and Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners too. What's the last word? Repentance. If you want to have eternal life, if you want the same God of the universe who's found exclusively and only through Jesus, for he is God himself, to come and heal you and raise you up from your mat. If you want Jesus to walk into your levi light situation, your garbage tax-collecting situation, and set you free, if you want to be free from the duty you've spent your life doing trying to be good, Jesus comes and says you must repent. Repent means turn. It means turn from everything you trusted in into Jesus and say, yes, I accept you as Savior and Lord. I want to follow you like Levi. I want you to look me in the eyes and call me up from the mat. He still does it today. And how do I know that? Because this church is full of people who are former cripples, Levi's, tax collectors, and scribes. Anyone want to raise their hand to admit that? I do. No, it's true. So here it is. Ready? Want to meet him? Pray this right now. Meet him at this moment. This is now the time. God has ordained this Thanksgiving, and whether you're hearing this now or later this week, or if this sermon is heard years later, this is still your time. Pray this prayer, dear Jesus, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins, and you rose from the dead, and I'm turning, my, I'm turning from running my own life, and now I'm asking you to run it and to be the Lord of my life. I invite you to come into my heart and my life. I trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, I pray this for the first time. Amen. I just want to say before I end uh, with our community, one thing I want to share with them. If you prayed that today and you're here, we have, we have a New Believers Bible for you. Like, come get it at the front, at the desks. If you're online, Facebook us, Instagram us, Twitter us. Dig through the roof. Get to us. <laughs> no, literally, because we want to help you in this. See, for... As I end this series, what is the challenge for us? Well, let me be very clear and very simple. See, four, we need to carry people to Jesus. We need to carry people to Jesus. It's why we were saved. 
We can really believe that we're doing well, by the way. I just want to say this, and growing because we get transplants from other churches. And that's fine because there are time to leave churches and join churches, but that's not growing. Jesus himself says it was the faith of the four men that was key to the person. So it is with us. And so I'm challenging our church, though many of us invite already, I am, like we talked about prayer, I'm asking for this to become a normative deep thing that all of us as a church commit regularly, weekly, to start inviting people to meet Jesus. That we regularly spend time and meals and coffees with those who do not come to church and do not know Jesus, or those who used to come to church, or those who go to church but don't really know him. And continue to invite him. We are an invitational church. And I am asking this church to up the ante under the power of God to continue to invite more and more. I want to be part of a church that is inviting people courageously all the time. And I just want to say this. This is so important. You don't just invite people at Christmas or Easter, though that's, that's easier. If we really as a church believe what the Bible says, hear this. That Jesus is found in guaranteed places. Why would we not, with absolute faith, invite people? You say, well, John, where's the guaranteed places? You are a guaranteed place. Because Jesus is in you. You are a guaranteed place of meeting. Do you know what else is a guaranteed place of meeting? Every time we gather in this building and we sing, what does the Bible teach? God inhabits what? The praises of his people. You start bringing people during worship. They may not be comfortable. They may not even like the worship style. But let me tell you, they will meet Jesus because he's among us. Every time someone opens the word of God, whether I'm preaching out of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Psalms, or anywhere in between, this is a guaranteed place of meeting God because it is alive and active. Every time we sing, every time we pray together expectantly, it says in scripture where two or three Christians are gathered, Jesus is in their midst we got to stop going, well, I wonder who's preaching, and I, I, I hope it's a really good day. And No, no, no. Understand, church, Jesus is here every Sunday. Jesus is here all the time, and we need to, without fear, start inviting people like we never have before, because today is the day of salvation. God is doing a new thing in our church. Jesus is continually offering himself to the world. There are guaranteed places of meeting, and we've got all the guaranteed places of meeting because we are the body of Christ. So my challenge to you is this. Stand up and invite your friends and bring everyone. Bring them all. Bring the religious people. Bring the unreligious people. Bring the broken people. Bring the, the, everyone. Because Jesus came for everyone. And this church, and I'm praying every other church in the area, will begin to courageously invite and leave the results to God, but say every week, you got to come. Why? Because it's a cool church and they got cool music? No. Jesus is there. And you're going to find eternal life. This is a rallying cry for us to take up the mission that every church has. So let's pray about it and see what God does with it. Lord, four friends, and then you went after another. Our prayer is this this morning as a congregation, not out of duty or compulsion or fear, but out of love that we've experienced. Oh, Lord, would you now empower our church to invite courageously? with great expectation because you're here. We pray now in faith that people 
as they're sitting under preaching, would become Christians. As people are watching baptisms, they'd become Christians. As people see other people worship, they'd become Christians. As people have lattes and coffees at Starbucks and Tim Hortons with people, they'd become Christians. We pray, O oh God, that we would have favor that we have never had before in this region. I pray this over this church and every church that loves Jesus Christ. O oh God, God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, clear a path and give us favor with many friends, enemies, and others that do not know Jesus in a way we have never seen. And we pray for thousands of people to come to faith in the living Lord Jesus Christ. We are saying to you, Lord, this morning that we are willing. Right? We're afraid. We don't think we have all the answers. We're broken. We think we, we, we won't do it right. But we are saying we will obey. Oh, Holy Spirit, give courage in this church to invite. Give courage in this church to talk about Jesus. Give courage. Help us to be the four friends, dragging, bringing hundreds and then thousands of people to meet you. Oh Lord, may this mark our church, not because it's good or not because it's a nice image, but because it's what you have ordained us to do. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who has saved us. God the Father, who elected us before the beginning of time, and the Holy Spirit that empowers us to act like Jesus and live a life like him. And all God's people said, amen. We're going to strand right now with uh, communion. And uh, Again, I just want to remind you, communion is the symbol of Jesus' death and resurrection. It is a symbol of everything that we hope for. It says in Scripture to confess sin before you take it. It says that if you're not a Christian, don't take it yet because you have not met the one it represents. But let me tell you, that is a guaranteed place of meeting. Jesus is not in the bread and the juice, but trust me, he is here when we take communion. It also is a time where maybe you need to sit silently and ask forgiveness or pray for the church. And it's going to be passed today. And so uh, you just take it when you're ready. And a reminder again that you can stand or kneel as we respond in worship. But this is a holy moment. And as you take communion, here's my Rome request. Would you say, oh Jesus, as I've experienced your love, help me now to carry others to this same love. Let's take communion together. Mm -hmm.